Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. This is a very special week for us. It is our one-year anniversary this week. Yay! And so in celebration, (laughs) we are going to be uh, recording another podcast episode because that's what we do. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. The BBC is pleased to report that a whale sculpture catches crashed Dutch metro train. Oh, man. I saw pictures of this. It's crazy. Yeah. The pictures are definitely worth checking out. It's astonishing. And the timing of it just felt so symbolic and metaphorical for (laughs) the election that we here in the United States have been going through as well. But a train driver in the Netherlands had a very lucky escape because of a fortuitously placed art installation. So don't you ever say that art doesn't save lives. That's right. (laughs) Government funding should be giving us all the beautiful art sculptures. (laughs) That's right. It was a metro train near the city of Rotterdam, and it crashed through a barrier at the end of the tracks shortly before midnight on a Sunday. But instead of plummeting 10 meters or 32 feet into the water below, the train was left suspended dramatically in the air. I mean, this is such a trope when it comes to like superhero movies and things like that. We see it in Spider-Man. Right. The dangling vehicle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. But because of the placement of this sculpture, the train ended up being delicately balanced on the large sculpture of a whale's tail at the metro station. (laughs) So at this point, they're trying to decide how they can bring the train down in a careful and controlled manner uh the driver who has not been named was asked (laughs) he was able to leave the empty train by himself he did not have any injuries when he was taken to the hospital for a checkup and the sculpture which is titled whale tales is the work of an architect and artist so that architecture may have kind of come into play in terms of these life-saving qualities that's true i mean it had to be pretty strong to hold up the weight of a train yeah that's true but Martin Struis, the person who created this, said he was surprised the structure did not break. Quote, it has been there for almost 20 years and you would actually expect the plastic to pulverize a bit, but that is not apparently the case. I kind of feel like they should leave the train there. Like it's not, it's part of the art installation now, right? Like it's it's yeah. performance art on the highest scale. <laughs> well, they may have to fortify the whale's tail, maybe add a couple of extra. <laughs> but you know, I I think that that proposal's got legs. Unlike the whale, which does it. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Nautilus.com, that's Nautil.us, and it's titled, We Never Know Exactly Where We're Going in Outer Space. Uh So, yeah, in the early 1960s during the space race, neither American nor Soviet scientists actually knew exactly where planets like Mars or Venus were, especially at the accuracy and precision needed for spacecraft navigation. Obviously, they knew roughly where a target like Venus would be when a spacecraft got there, but roughly in this context could have been an offset of 10,000 to 100,000 kilometers or so. Wow. Yeah. So planetary positions or their ephemerides rely on the calibrations of their orbits to extremely high precision over time. 
But the only way to do that properly is to make direct measurements, just like how sailors of old would actually have to sail right by an island or a shoreline in order to nail down its latitude and longitude. Mm -hmm. So an infamous example of this problem came in early 1961 when plans were afoot to send a probe to Venus, which started with the Soviet launch of Venera 1. Both Soviet and American scientists were racing to pin down Venus's position and use it to refine the astronomical unit, which then was defined as the average distance between the center of the Earth and the center of the Sun. A few months along, the Soviets proudly announced their improvised Venus-based measure of the astronomical units, but when Americans saw that this was about 100,000 kilometers different than their own radar-based measurement, they gleefully taunted the Soviets by suggesting that they had instead perhaps detected a new planet. Oh. Uh, But it could have been a lot worse. Like, Venera 1 could have missed by so much that it wouldn't have acquired any useful data, or it might have just careened into the planet and just exploded. (laughs) So with these sorts of traumatic lessons, scientists have been sweating over getting the ephemerides of solar system objects pinned down better and better ever since. But even with these immense improvements, the fundamental issue of precisely locating both spacecraft and their planetary targets hasn't gone away, and in fact, in certain ways, it's even become more acute. So, one of the keepers of the ephemerides today is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, which provides carefully curated and continually updated data on where we think planets, moons, comets, meteor streams, and asteroids are. It's kind of like a farmer's almanac for (laughs) planetary exploration. Mm. But the further we go, the more exotic our targets are, the greater the challenge. So one ambitious plan being drafted right now is this idea of sending tiny nanocraft with solar sails, which are basically huge metal mirrors that use solar radiation to propel themselves, Mm -hmm. and also with a very big laser, all the way to the Alpha Centauri system. And that's over four light years away and would involve a journey of at least 20 years traveling at 20% of the speed of light or around 134 million miles per hour. Jeez. Yeah, you can imagine the problem of getting to the right place at the right time in another solar system is way greater than reaching even one of our own remote planets like Pluto, and getting there was hard enough. Mm. For instance, launched at record-breaking speed in 2006, a New Horizons probe by NASA raced out to Pluto for more than nine years in five billion kilometers. And using telescopic measurements from here on Earth and a sophisticated computer model of Pluto's orbital motion, we can pin down its location in our skies to a precision of some 0.00014 degrees of angle. Hey. Yeah, but how yeah. how precise is that? Because angle is one of, it's like percent. That doesn't. Yeah, so Pluto is so far away that this small amount of uncertainty translates into a position error of about 13,000 kilometers, which is enough to completely hamper an effort at a close flyby. So <laughs> it's quite precise, but not quite precise enough. Right. <laughs> and to make this even trickier, the spacecraft actually experienced hard to predict drifts in its trajectory due to sublimely ethereal forces from like thermal radiation coming from its plutonium filled electrical generator and just messing itself up along the way. New Horizons finally made the encounter in July 2015 to the immense relief of scientists who had waited a literally substantial fraction of their entire lives between launch and arrival. (laughs) It zipped past Pluto at around 12.5 thousand kilometers of carefully chosen separation 
And even getting that took meticulous course corrections using the probe's cameras and a ton of patience. Yeah, I mean, they can correct it along the way. It's not like you shoot it off and you just got to cross your fingers you had it right in the first place. (laughs) Exactly. But now compare Pluto with the closest of the Centauri stars, for instance, a uh, red dwarf called Proxima. Mm. It's moving relative to our sun with a total velocity that we know to be about 32.19 kilometers a second. But the least significant figure of 0.01 kilometers a second translates into a raw uncertainty accumulated during a 20-year mission of a little over 6 million kilometers. (laughs) Just, Just a hair. Yeah, yeah. And that's a star, right? It's a bright, comparatively easily studied object, whereas planets in the system will be a billion times dimmer and much harder to pin down. Wow. So interstellar probes going that far are likely going to have to track their own targets and they'll probably have to do it autonomously because communications with the earth will take years to bounce back and forth one of the ideas is to send out a swarm of hundreds or even thousands of nanocraft with modest ai and the ability to kind of learn from each other as a network and hopefully you'll get to your goal just through tons of redundancy and just accepting that you're going to lose a bunch of them along the Mm -hmm. way One of the most curious things is that there are fundamental qualities of the physics of orbiting stars and planets that hinge on much, much smaller positional uncertainties and can literally dictate the survival of an entire system. Mm. So, for instance, there's this idea of dynamical chaos among gravitating objects, which is a confounding but mathematically chartable instability and unpredictability of celestial motions. It turns out that if you track the motion of the contents of our solar system through tens of millions to billions of years of time, variations in the positions of a smaller planet like Mercury, even at the level of millimeters, can make all the difference. Mm -hmm. It's the difference between having just a future of, you know, relatively bland orbital symmetry the way we have now, or a future where the inner solar system destabilizes, fleeing planets into the sun, or onto escape trajectories to interstellar space, or even placing worlds on collision courses with each other. Yeah, I'll take the bland fixed orbit. That sounds real good to me. Right, these that's days. the better yeah. thing. I don't know. Yeah. This feels like a really good takedown of math nerds by engineers, right? Because it's like you can sit there and say like, oh, no, we have the math. There's one answer and that's it. And you're like, yeah, but it all comes down to measurements. And if your tools don't work as well as you want them to, mm-hmm. you can have all the numbers in the world. If they're wrong, it's not going to matter. Right. Garbage yeah. in, garbage out. Yeah, exactly. And the article goes on to point out that the fact that these small variations can cause such radically different outcomes doesn't really sit well with most humans <laughs> that are hoping for some predictability in the world Uh uh, or the solar system as it were i mean it basically shows we know way more than we thought we did but also we're still idiots (laughs) (laughs) socrates was right yeah (laughs) next link next Next link. link Well, this delightful little article comes from Matilda Bosley at The Guardian. It's about the wombat. (gasps) And Australia is home to lots of deadly creatures, right? We like to think about the spiders and the snakes and just everything there is trying to kill you all the time. But (laughs) one fearsome creature that no one ever thinks about is, in fact, the wombat. It is a very dangerous animal. To its predators, not so much to humans. Okay. 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 Right. But the way that it defends itself is actually pretty amazing. A direct quote from this article sums it up, really. I think the rump of the wombat is hard as a rock. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, marsupial's bums are made up of four bone plates that are fused together and surrounded by cartilage, fat, skin, and fur. They basically have two skulls, one in their head and then one covering their butt. 
Alice Swinborn, who is an expert in wombat bottoms from the University of Adelaide, <laughs> says even a bite from a dingo could cause harm, but it wouldn't kill it. These are pretty hardy rumps. Yeah. Not only are their butts big and protective, but wombats can also then kick their legs out from underneath, which Swinborn says is strong enough to lift another wombat off the ground. So oh, wow. they, they really have these sort of powerful legs, kind of like you imagine a kangaroo does, except with mm. a giant helmet covering their butt to protect them. <laughs> In addition to the obvious defensive benefits of having a plate of armor over your tush, wombats use these butt plates in a number of unique ways. One defensive move is they will dig down into their burrows underground, then turn around and use their backside to plug up the entrance, which stops oh. predators from entering wow. and basically protects the softer areas of their anatomy. It's a shield. Yeah, exactly. There's also a persistent theory, though Swinborn herself doesn't buy it, that if a predator does get into the burrow, wombats will attack directly with their behind, crushing their opponent's skulls against the roof of the burrow. This, yeah, <laughs> which is just a cool move if you imagine the choreography of it. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that that has been programmed into some kind of 2D platform fighting video game. If it hasn't, it definitely needs to be. <laughs> this theory is supported by the fact that crushed fox skulls and bodies have often been found outside of the entrance to wombat burrows. But Swinborn says the animals may have died by other means and simply been crushed during housekeeping, as she calls it, when either the wombat or another creature who has taken over the empty burrow just tosses the old bones outside and they're sort of weakened by time and they get crushed mm. that way. I don't know if mm -hmm. I'm buying that. I mean, I feel like it's skulls don't get crushed easily. Something crushed <laughs> the skull. but Like possibly. another skull. Like right. a butt skull. Yeah. In particular, she notes that foxes are mostly too smart to go after adult wombats because they aren't likely to win. So if the wombats were really going around crushing skulls during epic battles, scientists should have found some crushed dingo skulls, but they never mm. have. So mm. uh, possibly it's like the wombat kills the fox and then a dingo comes along and eats its head or something. Who knows? But from an early age, mother wombats will bite their young until they learn how to back up to her defensively. The juveniles engage in a lot of play fighting that teaches them skills for when they're older, and it all involves the booty. They're all just kind of wiggling at each other. <laughs> Biting each other on the bottom is also a vital flirtation technique. Both Ooh. males and females will go up and bite the rump of a potential suitor. Then the other one will turn and chase them. And Swinborn notes that the end result can actually be quite violent as well. She says, it is a brutal process. You can come in the next morning and there will be chunks of fur all around the enclosure <gasps> where they've just had a huge mating bout. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> they're not very nice to each other either. You know, they can take it, I guess, yeah. with having their wombastic defense. I'm sorry. I was, <laughs> I was sitting on that one for a few minutes. <laughs> well, and given all that, it's pretty amazing that they are so gentle with humans. I mean, wombats, they're kind of like little koalas. You get these pictures of right. people snuggling them. They're just little cute creatures. So Yeah. But Swinborn's research is now being used by the University of Queensland to develop artificial insemination technologies to make sure that they don't become endangered. As she says, the bums are so important. So, you know, science is science. If it involves butts, so be it, I think. Next link. Next link. Well, let's stick around with some cool Australian animals because you know I like a good theme. Um, Gizmodo has a very tantalizing headline. As if the platypus couldn't get any weirder. Oh, goodness. Oh, boy. <laughs> so we all know the platypus is a pretty special creature, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of looks like a half a dozen different animals rolled into one. But it turns out they were hiding yet another conspicuous feature 
they can glow in the dark. What? Whoa, what? Okay. <laughs> I know. I know. Just hold on to your <laughs> wombat butt skull right now, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not enough for it to be a mammal that lays eggs, right? It has a duck-like bill. It's got webbed feet. It hunts using electroreception, which the article just kind of like casually tosses out there. Never <laughs> encountered that before. Right. But it also glows green under ultraviolet light because, oh. of course, it does. <laughs> So this is like, I mean, there have been a bunch of animals that they're like just now figuring out, oh, hey, some animals can see ultraviolet light. Maybe we should see what they look like under ultraviolet light. Yeah, it's an exclusive club, I think, in part because it's somewhat new, but it's one of only three known biofluorescent mammals. So we Ah. do know about a lot of like biofluorescent, you know, stuff in the ocean. We've seen those cool videos of like rave coasts and things like that. But the platypus does stand alone as the only monotreme or Mm. egg-laying mammal that can pull off this trick. The other biofluorescent mammals are possums and flying squirrels. But a team involved in the new study, led by biologist Paula Spaeth Anich from Northland College, were the ones who discovered biofluorescence in flying squirrels last year. And the discovery happened by accident. They were doing night surveys of lichens, of all things, and their field observations were later confirmed with specimens of flying squirrels kept at a museum. So Mm. they decided to try their luck with another nocturnal crepuscular mammal. Mm -hmm. And so for the new study, the team analyzed three museum's platypus specimens. Currently, the platypus is a near-threatened species and with a population trend in decline, so it kind of made sense to look at specimens in the museum, right? So platypus fur looks brown when you're just looking at it in visible light. But as the new research shows, the fur glows green or even cyan under UV light. Hmm. Wow. See, now this sounds dangerous because if CSI has taught me anything, it's that human bodily fluids are fluorescent (laughs) under UV light. So if you start walking through a museum, just sort of shining it on every animal to see what happens, Mm -hmm. you might find some stuff you weren't looking for. (laughs) Like that doesn't, (laughs) that seems dangerous. It does, but it could also pave the way to discoveries like platypuses. Yeah. Super weird, right? Or a murder that happened a few years ago that you didn't know about. Either one. Well, in the case of the platypus, they're thinking that this biofluorescence is likely an adaptation to low light conditions because remember, they're active during dusk and dim. Mm. So their glowing fur could be a way for the species to see and interact with each other at night when UV absorbance and fluorescence may be particularly important to mammals. And this is also really interesting from an evolutionary perspective because monotremes, marsupials, and placental mammals, they split off from a common ancestor about 150 million years ago when the Triassic was coming to a close. So that's a lot of time in possible evolution. So In the press release, they said it was intriguing to see that animals that were such distant relatives also had biofluorescent fur. And so they're closing the paper with another question, like good scientists, is biofluorescence an ancestral mammalian trait? Is it something we have like shed and lost over our years of evolution? Oh, now. Oh, man. Now I'm picturing like (laughs) glowing humans walking around the Serengeti. I like it. Right? Because if three wildly disparate groups of mammals retained this trait after 150 million years, it means the genes responsible for biofluorescent fur are highly conserved in the parlance of biologists. So Mm -hmm. it's not impossible, but another reasonable explanation could be that these three species acquired their glowing fur independently as a consequence of convergent evolution. Although 
I am personally in my non-scientific position biased to think we were all biofluorescent and just need to rediscover that. Mm -hmm. Well, and Mm -hmm. you said the word crepuscular, which is interesting to me because I just heard that word somewhere else. I learned that dogs are crepuscular because they're most active at dawn and dusk. Like you said, they nap all day and then they sleep at night Mm -hmm. as well. So now, like, I want to go check out my dogs. I want to get a UV light and shine it on them just to see. <laughs> just be careful what you find. You know they may have committed a dog murder. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was darker than I meant for it to be. I meant, like, you know, with a bone or something. But that Honestly, really... I-, I wouldn't put it past one of my dogs. She's, she's pretty young. <laughs> oh, that just wounded me in a way I was not expecting. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from atlasobscura.com, and I'm actually going to bring it back to whale installations with what it takes to dismantle and move a 40-foot whale skeleton. Oh, like a real one, like at a museum. Yeah, like a real one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to guess a lot of cranes. (laughs) Yeah. It's actually more about loading it onto the truck, I think, is the tricky part. But uh, (laughs) we'll we'll get into the details right now. Okay. So for two weeks in October 2020, Nigel Larkin's truck traveled back and forth between the whole Maritime Museum and his conservation workshop several hours away, carrying load after load of this precious cargo. So there was the large tuna skeleton and assorted whale skeletons, among them a narwhal nearly nine feet long and a sperm whale jawbone that alone measured some 12 feet. Wow. Dang. And he saved the largest specimen for the final haul, which was the bones of a 40-foot juvenile North Atlantic right whale, a species that's now so endangered that there's just about 400 left in the entire world. Hmm. Oh, wow. Larkin also spent five years at London's Natural History Museum during a career that's seen him excavate nearly million-year-old human footprints in Happisburg, dig through ancient penguin guano, and take the tail off Dippy the Dinosaur, uh, the (laughs) beloved Diplodocus replica at the London Museum that's now on a farewell tour of the UK, after which it'll be loaned to another museum. Okay. He's not going yeah. anywhere. He's still- <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say farewell yeah, tour yeah. sounds like one of those going out of business signs that's always up on the store. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He'll end up at some used car lot on the roof like trying to <laughs> attract customers. So Larkin's upcoming projects are all also really big. One is a giraffe and another is a full-scale replica of a T-Rex. Oh, wow. And for his job, you need to know anatomy, blacksmithing, welding, oh. conservation, <laughs> Casting, 3D scanning, 3D printing, and how to build structures that can lift a heavy weight. Wait, this is a team of people, not a single person. Yes, that's correct. Okay, okay, all right. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a hell of a job posting. Like, you need the following (laughs) skills. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they also go into how you deal with the challenge of disassembling and moving it. The skull is the largest intact piece, and luckily that was actually sawed in half right down the midline soon after it was defleshed, which, you know, luckily for them, not so much for the skeleton (laughs) skull. But that does mean that they only had to deal with half the skull at a time. And the skull is particularly vulnerable to damage because it sticks out at the front and it's quite heavy. And it's also really fascinating to look at some of the photos here. Like you can see these two guys just engulfed by the skull. One of them is literally sitting underneath it. I don't understand why they didn't bring the lab to the museum. Like what's so special in his (laughs) conservation lab that it needs to stay a couple miles down the road and he can't just say, you know what, I'm going to move into this room where the whale already is. 
and do my work yeah. here. I mean, I assume it's all the blacksmithing, welding, conservation, right, casting, right. 3D so scanning, etc., etc. You don't want a welder sitting there in the middle of the museum terrifying the patrons. Yeah, exactly. So another challenge is that at some point in the past, the museum had used an incredibly thick, sticky resin to stick all the bones together. And that's not something you do today. But during the 1970s, people did some really strange stuff in museums. <laughs> and they were clearly worried about the skeleton falling apart. Mm -hmm. So Crushing everyone beneath it. Right. Yeah. Liability issue. <laughs> right. Exactly. So looking toward the future, the bones still do hold DNA that could be extracted by researchers. North Atlantic right whales are one of the most endangered whale species. And the skeletons are a bank of DNA of whales that were alive 100 to 200 years ago, which could be useful in the long-term conservation of these species. And, you know, if you're wondering, the pandemic hasn't really affected this work too much because this team has their own entire workshop where they can just kind of hole up and work on their whale skeletons, which is pretty <laughs> cool. Uh, but they do end up developing relationships sort of with the specimens. He calls them all old friends. That, <laughs> yeah, like they've worked on them. They know their history. So you've spent a really long time with them. So you really do feel like you know them, even though they're dead skeletons, so to speak. But, you know. As objects that were once alive and all that. Yeah, if you can have a pet um, rock, you can have a pet whale skeleton. I don't see a problem with right? it. Yeah, exactly. It really says more about humans than whales. Right, but, right. You, know, you can form relationships with anything. And finally, Larkin ends by saying, also, it's not about the money. Do what interests you. And I I don't know how much money there is yeah, in a whale I mean, skeleton moving. I don't think that statement can be made unless we know how much he makes. Because like true. That, that being yeah, that's said, I'm true. sure this is a real niche occupation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bet it's a lot. <laughs> when I read that line, I was like, either he makes very little or he makes a ton. Right, right. He's trying to justify like, yeah, 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 I'm filthy rich. But I don't do it for that, y'all. I do it because I love the whale skeletons. Yeah, they're my friends. Yeah. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, this next one is a new study from the University of Cambridge. The headline is Game Combats Political Misinformation by Letting Players Undermine Democracy. Oh, so dear. it sounds terrifying, but it's actually very cute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> researchers have created a video game called Harmony Square in which players are recruited as a chief disinformation officer and are supposed to use tactics such as trolling to sabotage elections in a peaceful town. Oh, my gosh. The article includes a link to the game, which is short but very fun. And more importantly, they've done the data collection to show that playing this game makes people more aware of misinformation techniques and better able oh. to spot when these tactics are being used against them in the real world. They were also very quick to note that among the study participants, their political leanings had no bearing on how good or bad they were at determining various misinformation, and they all got better after playing. Okay. Yeah. All right. The study was funded by the U.S. Department of State's Global Engagement Center and the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, and Infrastructure Security Agency. I'm not sure why they need security twice in that acronym, but I won't argue with them. <laughs> um, and it was published in the Harvard Misinformation Review. So I don't know if there's a lot of articles in that journal or if it's just been created for this one, but I like it. I think that's a good name for a journal. They described the game as an example of pre-bunking, which has been shown in other studies to be more effective than debunking a bad information source after the fact, right? Mm, so you're sort of preparing mm -hmm. people with skills before they go out there and are exposed to things. And it works even though the game is pretty obvious and tongue-in-cheek about what it's doing. Right. So the residents of Harmony Square are described in the game as obsessed with democracy 
And the player is trying to discredit the major party's candidate for bear controller by setting up a fake online news site, trolling the town's beloved local TV anchor, and polarizing the townspeople against each other on the subject of bears. So it's very silly, and you can play it on the website. I highly recommend it. It's a cute little game. And in the randomized controlled trial, researchers took 681 people, asked them to rate the reliability of a series of news and social media posts. Some were real, some were misinformation, and some were even faked misinformation created specifically for the study in case the participants had already come across the real-world examples that they used. Ah. Then Mm. they gave half the participants Harmony Square to play, while the other half played Tetris just in case playing games in general makes you less susceptible to misinformation, (laughs) and then ask them to rate another series of news posts for reliability. The perceived reliability of misinformation dropped an average of 16% after just 10 minutes of playing Harmony Square. And yeah, it really worked. And the authors acknowledged that they still need to study whether these effects can be longer lasting with a more robust and engaging game. So basically, we need to get Sid Meier on the phone. And say, you know, (laughs) hey, buddy, make us a really, really obsessive game. Because, uh, frankly, even if it doesn't work, if people are playing all their time, then they won't be exposed to misinformation because they'll all be sucked into the game. Mm. Yeah, but I'm so leery of, like, the cure for misinformation is to become a propagandist. Like, Right, is to teach people how to be good (laughs) at it. Right, right, right. (laughs) I mean, I get it. And that makes a lot of sense to kind of show how the sausage is being made. But then we have a whole bunch of sausage makers and... <laughs> um, I don't know, man. Don't know if you want to give those skills to just anybody, huh? <laughs> yeah. That that being said, anything that promotes critical thinking skills is something that I do want to support. So yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, and I'm a fan of gamifying anything. I really, really support the idea of using yeah. games to get people sucked in. Even when they know they're being taught something, they're happier being taught it when they're being taught by a game. True. So, uh, you know, go play it. It's fun. It only takes about 10 minutes and maybe you'll come out a little bit wiser than you even thought you might going in. Well, for sure, it will enhance my uh, marketing career. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Have you guys heard about the COVID cough algorithm? No. No. No? Oh, well, I am pleased to tell you that the BBC (laughs) News and Zoe Kleinman, the technology reporter, are happy to report that an algorithm that's developed in the U.S. has correctly identified people with COVID-19 just by the sound of their cough. Oh, like compared to other coughs from other diseases? Mm -hmm. Yep. Whoa. In tests, it achieved a 98.5% success rate among people who had received an official positive coronavirus test result, and it rose to 100% in those who had no other symptoms. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Oh, oh, no other symptoms besides coughing. Like correct, you, you can't correct. you can't like walk up like a doctor, like turn your head and cough in a fake way. And they'll be like, oh, you got coronavirus. <laughs> like you have to have an actual cough. I mean, you have to have a cough. But if you have a cough and you're asymptomatic with no other symptoms, mm-hmm. it can tell whether that cough is indicative of coronavirus. Wow. So the researchers do need regulatory approval to develop it into an app. But with that kind of accuracy, and especially with the current COVID test being so invasive and poking the brain and everything like that. Mm-hmm. It comes down to the crucial difference in the sound of an asymptomatic COVID patient cough that could not be heard by human ears. So AI doing us a solid, potentially. (laughs) I mean, you said an app. If you put this thing on everybody's phone, 
Like they'll just walk around coughing on their phone all day. That seems like a counterintuitive. <laughs> well, <laughs> practical use cases could be for daily screening of students right. in schools, workers in the public, especially transportation to quickly alert of outbreaks in groups, mm -hmm. right? The artificial intelligence algorithm was built at MIT. Several organizations, including Cambridge University, Carnegie Mellon, and UK health startup Novoi, have been working on similar projects. That's why I kind of asked, like, have you guys heard about this? Because I've been hearing kind of rumbles about this, even though, mm. you know, we've got some regulatory hurdles to actually bring it into the public. Mm -hmm. Back in July, Cambridge's COVID-19 Sounds project reported an 80% success rate in identifying positive coronavirus cases based on a combination of breath and cough sounds. Hmm. And then by May, it had a data set of about 459 cough and breath samples that were submitted by 378 members of the public. Now says it has about 30,000 recordings. Hmm. But the MIT lab, not to be outdone, collected about 70,000 audio samples, wow. each containing a number of coughs. And of those, about 2,500 are from people with confirmed cases of coronavirus. I like the opposite effect of this, that like for months now, if I am at the grocery store and I just get, you know, a spit down my throat or whatever, and I have to cough, I'm like, oh, I cannot <laughs> cough in public anymore because everyone's going to look at me. Like, I want to have a little app that I can cough into my phone and be like, look, look, see, it's not coronavirus. I'm fine. You know, so I'd be allowed exactly. to cough again. Cough or allergies. I, yeah. COVID or allergies. I would, I would pay $4.99 for that. Oh, app. heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. So apparently I'm stuck in the ocean today. Uh, this <laughs> article comes to us from gizmodo.com and it's titled, Tourists will soon be able to visit the Titanic wreck for $125,000. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the rich people going into space. Seriously, I had that gasp of joy and then followed by the deflated sound of the not ultra wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> An AI can uh, determine that sigh now, by the way. <laughs> so the pandemic has hit the tourism industry especially hard over the past year. Wonder why. Yeah. Uh, but starting in May of 2021, those itching to travel again, at least straight down, will have the opportunity to visit the most infamous shipwreck of all time. A century after the ship, which was ironically thought to be unsinkable, thanks to its innovative double-hull design, in case you are not aware of the Titanic, which <laughs> I guess is actually you possible know, nowadays. Well, some people might not Statistically, be. It's been a while. Exactly. It's been a while since the James Cameron movie, right? <laughs> That's right. Leonardo DiCaprio is really old now, so it's... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't tell his 20-something girlfriends. Ugh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, this ship was really big. It was a testament to human hubris went down after hitting an iceberg in 1912 and decades after the wreckage was finally discovered by Dr. Robert Ballard in 1985, hundreds of people have visited the site and a Washington-based company, OceanGate Expeditions, will be returning to the Titanic's final resting place for a series of research expeditions running from May to September over the next few years and will be inviting a small number of guests to tag along. So it's actually kind of a mixture of, uh, you know, deep sea tourism and mm -hmm. scientific funding, which is kind of cool. Yeah, there's a lot of so, stuff like that where they're like, big game hunting is bad. But also if you let really rich people come in and big game hunt older animals that you know are going to die, you get the money that allows you to conserve <sighs> the rest of the thing. Like, I, it's, it's one of those things that's very conflicting. 
but ultimately getting the money is better for the cause, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, when you're not, yeah. you know, publicly funding science, you're funding it privately. Right. If it were well funded to begin with, you wouldn't need that. Yeah. But <laughs> Yeah. I mean, this feels a lot like the game designed to teach you how to manipulate information. <laughs> to it, you know? there, there's a weird through line with this article and the other things. Wow. So Stockton Rush, the president of Ocean Gate Expeditions, worked with Boeing and NASA to design and build his carbon fiber submarine called Titan. Featuring a 21-inch circular window allowing two occupants to peer outside the craft, which can descend to depths of 2.5 miles, or just slightly deeper than the depth of the Titanic wreck. The submarine can hold a crew of just five people, a pilot, a scientist, and what the company will be calling the three mission specialists, Uh who've each paid $125,000 for the eight-day adventure. So it's basically like being an executive producer. (laughs) Uh, You just give a lot of money and you get a cool title. Which is how it works in the rest of the world, too, often. So, you know. Fair. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the purpose of the descents will be research-based. Rush hopes to study how the ship is decaying over time, document the thousands of artifacts that surround the wreckage in a large debris field, catalog some of the 300 types of creatures that now call the Titanic home, and use laser scanners and sonar to create a detailed 3D model of what's left of the ship and the debris surrounding it. Rush also intends to turn a profit on the expeditions and told Bloomberg that requires him to charge at least $100,000 to make money. Mm -hmm. And paying customers aren't just along for the ride, though. They'll actually help with the research being conducted on board the sub and the support vessel on the surface, which boasts a large crew of 50 to 60 scientists, engineers, and experts in the field. So this expedition makes the Titanic one of the most expensive tourist destinations on Earth. By comparison, climbing Mount Everest with an experienced guide and Sherpas will cost you upwards of $45,000, which is really a relative bargain by comparison. (laughs) But yeah, you got to do all that walking and all that work. Why don't you just, you know, sit sit back, back, relax. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The article does not describe how exactly these people will be helping with the research experiments, and I'm curious to see if these are just like token tasks or right. their actual requirements or expectations. Right. Write down uh, what my this guess guy is the says. former. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this article from Texas Monthly invites us to meet an intrepid Texan who spends winters at the South Pole. So it's the profile of a modern day explorer adventurer named Wayne White. In the off season, he's a Texan living in Rockport, which is a lovely beachy area, but he never really gets to see those lovely beaches in their prime because during our summer in the Northern Hemisphere, it is winter in the Southern Hemisphere. And that's when Wayne works as the site manager of the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station in Antarctica, where he's responsible for the safety of 42 technicians and crew, maintaining scientific facilities, and keeping the National Science Foundation up to date on what's going on during the 10 months of the year when the Antarctic is in a accessible. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in addition to being cut off from the world from February through November, the station is in 24-hour darkness from April to September with wind chills Oof. as low as negative 134 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. wow. Wayne notes that even at negative 80 degrees, that, you know, balmy weather, you can lose your hands or feet in the cold within minutes, and that even breathing at the South Pole sounds different because there's a cracking whoosh as the vapor from your breath instantly crystallizes <gasps> in front of you. Whoa. Yeah. Despite this, Wayne takes a daily exercise run outside alone, no matter the weather. Well, yeah, I know. I can't imagine that that's in the safety guidelines, but he does it. Yeah, so. that's so high risk. Yeah. The crew has a whiteboard by the door to note when anyone goes outside, 
So every morning he writes on there, you know, going out for my exercise run. And the top of the board features the headline, if no return, look for frozen pile when sun returns in September. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, a little bit of dark humor for anyone who's working at the South Pole, which makes sense. Uh, but Wayne is not worried because he knows how to read the wind, stars, and snow to find his way back, even in utter darkness or whiteout conditions. What? A, I mean, okay, maybe the, I was trying to reconcile. He lives in Texas when he's not doing this. I was like, all those talents are wasted. And then I thought, oh, that's his vacation. He doesn't want to have to read right. wind and temperature all. Okay. All right. Yeah. And when the weather's not too bad, he'll gear up in the canvas anoraks provided by the military. But on the worst days, he says nothing's better than an Inuit jacket made of Siberian wolf fur. And you have to see the pictures of this guy in his, like, wolf Whoa. fur suit. He looks exactly like a Texan at the South Pole would. He has a big white <laughs> Sam Elliott mustache. He's got long hair and he's just got this giant grin that's like, yeah, I do this. What about it? Like, he's definitely got some uh, machismo, but it's endearing. He's awesome. They, they note some other inconveniences of living at the South Pole, of which there are many. All the food is frozen. The rooms are... <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but they don't have to pay for the electricity, I guess. I, that's true. Yeah. I guess their refrigerator is more like a heater, actually. That's... Oh, that's weird to think about. All right. <laughs> the rooms are jail cell sized, and there is only a short daily window of reliable internet connectivity. So they have no TV or streaming video to keep them going through these months of disconnection. I could not. Yeah. And they noted most of the crew was unable to vote in the 2020 election because there is no mail service, though some Ugh. crew can vote by fax depending on the rules of their home state. So a few people did get their data in, but not everybody. Wow. Only about 1,600 people in the world can claim to have made it through an Antarctic winter. And this year, Wayne has become the first person to serve as winter manager of the station three times, marking a collective two and a half years at the South Pole in his life. In the 64 years that the United States has had a presence at the South Pole, only two other winter managers have lasted even two seasons. And Wayne is the only one to ever make back-to-back -back winters. So I, the guy is cool. He's cooler than yeah. anybody else who's ever held the Hardcore. job. Yeah. Unfortunately, he says this one will be his last. After this season, he'll be going back to serving as station manager at nearly 20 other posts around the world, from Ascension Island in the South Atlantic to Wake Island in the Western Pacific. He's really more of a general station manager, and they all rotate around, and he just happens to be the one who likes the South Pole the most, I guess. <laughs> he said mostly he's done with the South Pole because he misses his wife and their 18 rescue cats who <gasps> travel around the world with him to live at every post except Antarctica. His wife just won't do it. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you can't blame her. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, 18 cats? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't take 18 cats to the South Pole. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> she is also a teacher, so she has to be a little more stable in her job. But most of his posts are for a year long. So just wherever she goes, she picks up a teaching job there. Wow. His journey home this month will include over 20 hours by plane, stopping first in New Zealand before hopping home to Texas. And then, ironically, he'll have to quarantine for two weeks before seeing his wife because he could have been exposed during his travel, even though the Antarctic is the only mm. continent that has remained completely COVID-free. So nobody down mm -hmm. there is social distancing or wearing masks because they're like, look, first of all, we're wearing masks all the time because it's too dang cold. And second of all, there <laughs> are no cases at the South Pole. So Yeah, but the travel will do you in. That's right. That's right. Getting on a plane, <laughs> yeah. that's way more dangerous than going for a run in negative 80 degree weather. 
<laughs> but he says compared to 10 months of isolation, an extra two weeks is nothing. He's going to work on his books. And he says the most exciting part of getting back will be going to the grocery store and that you can't imagine what an H-E-B seems like after being here for a year. So, <laughs> and I don't even know if the rest of the world knows. H-E-B is the grocery store chain in Texas. They're not really anywhere else, but down here, that's the grocery store. That's where everybody goes. So, And it is superior to wherever you're getting your groceries, just saying. Certainly compared to uh, Antarctica. You can't get a lot of groceries down there. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us on this, our first birthday podcast. Only 20 more years of podcasts and this podcast will be old enough to drink, which, uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully by then it won't feel as necessary. Some of the articles that we did not get to today are the foul smelling fuel that could power big ships, why consumers think pretty food is healthier, and the genome of your pet fish is extremely weird. <laughs> so all that and more can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast, you've liked us for a year, you'd like to see us go for another year, head on down to Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>